Today's show is brought to you by Pleasureland RV. Best in the Midwest. Learn more at PleasurelandRV.com. Welcome, dear listeners, on this Sunday, June 25th, 2023, to WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. I am Rob Dreesline, your humble host here on the broadcast, downtown Minneapolis. Still hopping. A lot of activity still down here. I think uh, I think Minnesota's going to survive the big concert uh, that happened for the past couple of days. I won't go into it any more detail than that because that singer, as wonderful as she may be, probably doesn't need any more publicity. Uh, let's uh, stick to outdoors ta- topics here for the next uh, one hour. We're here until 6 o'clock. Uh, in a little bit, we're going to have Joe Shedd. He's up on Lake Superior. He's going to call in and talk about a story he's writing for Outdoor News about Lake Herring, also known as Cisco, also known as Tulabees. A lot of Minnesotans call Lake Herring Tulabees. And it sounds like there's a big year class of Tulabees up on uh, the Big Lake, Lake Superior, and that's going to have some ramifications for larger sport fish and sport fishing. So it's good news, uh, and we're going we're gonna to talk to Joe about that a little bit. At the bottom of the hour, I think our friend Scott Bestel, I've known Scott a lot of years, we'll probably reminisce a bit, but Scott uh, has written the stories that you've probably seen in a couple publications about this great big non-typical whitetail uh, that was found and appears to be the new Boone and Crockett record for Minnesota. So we're going to talk to Scott uh, a little bit about that, Uh, quite a story. A number of other news topics that I want to uh, chat about, and uh, we'll have time for calls probably at the end. If anyone uh, would like to give us a call, I'll uh, plug the the phone line uh, in a little bit when I've got some time. A reminder, uh, this Saturday, July 1st, we've talked a lot about it during the legislative session. It became law, and it's now official, and it kicks in in six days. Two-line angling on the Minnesota River. Now, that's just the Minnesota River and that stretch of the Mississippi downstream from St. Anthony Falls to the confluence. Uh, Those two stretches of river, those are technically inland waters, now are going to have two-line fishing. That's unique. You don't get to use two lines for fishing on inland waters other than ice fishing. You can use two lines during ice fishing, but open water angling you cannot on any lake and any river other than now officially uh, the uh, the stretch of the the Mississippi the border waters have always you know had two line fishing or at least for many years but now we got a couple of inland waters and that's kind of a big deal uh, that will kick in on Saturday July one on the Minnesota and this stretch of the Mississippi River it has not kicked in yet <laughs> we uh, Tor- uh, Tory McCormick wrote a story for Outdoor News that said. A couple of conservation officers have reported that some people think it, uh, you know, it already went into effect. You know, as soon as the legislative session was over, uh, it did not. Uh, it will kick in on uh, next, this Saturday, July first. And by the way, it applies to the Minnesota River and that stretch of the Mississippi, but not any tributaries to those rivers. So, you know, if you're like, hey, uh, here's a nice little stream or river, and maybe I can get my boat up there, can I still work two lines uh, beyond the confluence where it hits the Minnesota? No, you cannot. Uh, strictly within the confines of the Minnesota River up to that Granite Falls Dam, uh, and again, the Mississippi up to uh, St. Anthony Falls. So big change. Uh, we had a guy named Darren Trosseth on this show, I don't know, a month, six weeks ago or so, and, and the cat, he's a catfish guy, and they were uh, some of the folks that were advocating for this. So I'm sure they're very happy, and uh, off we go. Speaking of the Minnesota River, the DNR issued a press release, I think it was on Thursday or Friday, that said the agency is inviting anglers and other members of the public to comment through Friday, August 11th. 
about fishing and fisheries topics on the Minnesota River uh, to inform and update uh, fisheries management plan that the agency is doing. The timing strikes me as a little interesting, given that they just made a major uh, regulatory policy change. It doesn't just affect catfish anglers. It affects all anglers. Any any angler, if you're fishing walleyes, bluegills, whatever, on the Minnesota River now, you can use two lines, again, starting this Saturday. Uh, but the uh, the DNR's got, uh, uh, they're doing, they're updating this management plan, and that's good. It's It's always good that the agency does that. It just, again, struck me, it's kind of interesting that they would, Announce this right after a fairly large regulatory change. Uh, check out uh, this week's Outdoor News or go to OutdoorNews.com or the DNR website, and you can check out uh, you know, how, to, how to chime in on that process. It uh, looks like there is a uh, fisheries specialist that's taking emails or calls, uh, and then I think there's also going to be, uh, well, I don't see anything about a public, com- uh, a public meeting, but there's certainly a public comment period. And then there are going to be public meetings, or what the DNR calls public engagement sessions, on uh, this big change uh, involving the Upper Sioux Agency State Park. Uh, the DNR uh, and the legislature, you know, obviously it was the, mostly the legislature, uh, passed uh, as part of its policy bills this year uh, a plan to transfer the Upper Sioux Agency State Park lands to the Upper Sioux community. Uh, we talked about that a little bit on this broadcast. It kind of surprised some of us. It seemed to kind of come out of the blue. Uh, the uh, DNR and uh, the band saying that, you know, there's been discussions about this for years, but they certainly weren't, If I would say they were not public. We didn't hear much about it until the spring. A number of media sources reported on it uh, this spring when it kicked off. But apparently they're doing two sessions to kind of uh, talk to the public about it and share feedback uh, there, it's really too late for the public to influence this very much. The it, law passed, so this this is a done deal. But representatives from the DNR are going to be on hand to uh, provide information, answer questions. Uh, these two meetings, two sessions held at the Kilowatt Community Center in Granite Falls, Thursday, uh, June 29th, one from 2 to 4 p.m. and one from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. So... Uh, if you're interested in that topic, this Thursday, June 29th is the time, I guess, to uh, talk to the DNR about it. Like I say, it's already uh, passed in terms of uh, it's, its law, but nonetheless, I guess there's still an opportunity to uh, to uh, offer your two cents. I think uh, for the sake of enjoying some time with our guests and answering a lot of, getting a lot of questions in with them, we're going to take a break. Uh, we will uh, return. We're going to talk with Joe Shedd. He's up on Lake Superior. We're going to talk about uh, some good news up there for sport anglers on the greatest of lakes. Don't go away. You're listening to WCCO Outdoors. Welcome back, everybody, WCCO Outdoors. I am Rob Dreesline, Managing Editor, Publisher of the Outdoor News Publications. It's 5.17 p.m. I want to check in with a friend of mine. In uh, the northern portion, up in the uh, Lake Superior region, Mr. Joe Shedd. I don't believe he's been on the broadcast before, but he agreed to jump in and talk a little bit about uh, some good news up there. Joe, how are you doing, my friend? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Rob. Yeah, yeah. It's it's good to uh, good to chat with you a little bit. You write a lot about deer hunting and shed hunting in outdoor news, but you're uh, you're a Lake Superior guy. You're an angler too. And uh, there there was a story in the Star Tribune. Greg Stanley had a good story about this uh, lake herring boom on the big lake. Uh, also, uh, you're, you're working on one for Outdoor News. 
Uh, tell us a little bit about what's cooking up there. Uh, Lake Herring, a native uh, member of the, uh, of the of the whitefish family, right? They're, we call them tulabies in, in some of our inland lakes, don't we? Yeah, so the, they're the native prey species in Lake Superior, and uh, they're long-lived species. They can live to be 40 years in Lake Superior, and they haven't produced a good spawn in quite a while. So, you know, it's been kind of a concern, like, when are they going to start reproducing again? Um, but it looks like the, the 2022 spawn was like one for the, the record books. Um, so there's a lot of you know, one-year-old uh, lake herring out there right now. Um, the king salmon are gobbling down on The kings are getting bigger than they have been in, in a long, long time. The lake trout are feasting. So everything is rocking and rolling for Lake Superior right now. Yeah, the, the Stanley piece talked a lot about lake trout. But as soon as I heard this, I was thinking about king salmon and cohos. And, and steelhead will eat them too, I presume, won't they? Yeah. And, and, and see how we're talking about uh, lake run rainbow trout. Yeah, this bodes well for sport anglers because all of these sport fish eat these things, right? This is the, I remember Tom Dixon. Uh, I don't know if you know Tom. He used to be uh, the, the Fish and Wildlife Public Information Officer with the, uh, the Minnesota DNR uh, way back. He, he moved to Montana eventually. But he was really into rough fish and, and lesser-known non-sport fish species like whitefish and tulabies. And he wrote a story once, and the headline on tulabies was cheeseburgers with fins. They're, they're a really valuable uh, forage fish because they're so oily, right? Yeah, exactly. And so they uh, tell us what happened here. Why, you know, why had there been such a void all these years, Joe, in terms of you know, why aren't they pulling off a spawn? Well, you know, I'm, I'm not a biologist. I don't want to speak for the fisheries biologist, but I think... You know, what it sounds like, like I said, they can literally be like 40 years old, so kind of their strategy is maybe they don't reproduce well every year, um, and every once in a while when conditions are right, they'll, they'll really put off, pull off a big spawn. And what it sounds like happened last year is uh, the, uh, the DNR fisheries biologists have found that years with better ice cover usually do better. Now, we didn't actually have good ice cover a year ago, but it was a late spring and a cold spring, so what happened is when these two of these hatch in, the, in April... Um, the, the eggs are laid in the previous you know, November, but the eggs hatch in April, and the fish have a yolk sac for a few days. And then once that yolk sac is used up, they need to eat something. So with the, the cold spring we had last year, the zooplankton blooms were delayed a little bit. So when those um, young herring were just to the age where they're starting, you know, their yolk sac is used up and they're ready to eat food in the lake, um, there was a, a, a late bloom of zooplankton that really provided a smorgasbord for them, and they did really well. And, and that's kind of what the biologists are thinking has happened. Um, we're not exactly sure, but that's kind of what it looks like. It sounds like, yeah, you need a, a combination of factors. You need a really cold lake, you need cold conditions, and you need that food source, that zooplankton, uh, to provide it and you give them that boost that first year. And and uh, the stars aligned, and off we go. I, you know, sometimes I, I think about Red Lake. I don't know if you remember back in the day when the the walleyes were all gone there, and we had that huge crappie boom that one year. And and for years, people were catching these huge slabs. And it was a little bit like nature abhors a vacuum. But again, eventually, something's going to to blow up and fill it. What's the difference for folks who are you know familiar with some of these small fish on the Great Lakes between uh, the the lake herring slash tulabies? And the smelt. I think a lot of people hear about smelt on the Great Lakes, and, and they, they, they actually conflate the two. They think they're the same thing. They're not, right? Right. 
So uh, the lake herring were a native species, and, and these lake herring, I mean, they're not they're not tiny fish. When they're adults, um, they can be like you know about 16 years or 16 inches long uh, mm-hmm. on average, about. So they're mm-hmm. good sized fish. And right now, these one year old fish that you know hatched in you know, spring of 2022 are about smelt size right now. They're about five to six inches long. Uh, the smelt were non-native. They got in through the St. Lawrence Seaway, and what's really interesting too is they're doing this uh, spring crawl survey. The U.S. Geological Survey is doing a survey right now that they've done annually since 1978, um, you know, trolling the bottom to see what's down there, and that's where they're finding all these age one uh, lake herring. And what's really interesting is this is the first survey in the history, so 45 years going back, where they've actually found more um, lake herring, the, the native species, than rainbow smelt in Lake Superior. So the smelt thing really blew up, what, was it in the 50s and 60s? It kind of coincided with the, uh, the, uh, the sea lamprey, right? The sea lamprey had knocked back the lake trout, and so there weren't a lot of big predators right when these smelt hit the system, and so they just exploded in population. I think a lot of people might remember, even I remember when I was a kid in the, in the 70s in, in northern Michigan, uh, people going out and you know catching bucketfuls of these smelt, I think when they were spawning, if memory serves. Uh, but then, what, we, we, we released a bunch of Pacific-run salmon in there, right, like the kings and the cohos, and they... Did they really kind of put a pounding on the uh, the smelt as well as the lake trout, right, when they rebounded after some of the sea lamprey work got done? Yeah, you know, so that was kind of the reason why Pacific salmon were introduced to the Great Lakes. Okay. Mostly eel-wise on you know, Lake Michigan and stuff. But, um, but yeah, to, to kind of control these, uh, these um, invasive species like smelt or eel-wise. Um, but, you know, with any um, invasive species, you know, no matter what you're talking, they're going to, you know, when they have no predators, they're going to, you know, just take off and their numbers are going to explode and eventually the, the predators come around and their their population gets knocked back to, like, a lower level. And that's kind of what happened. The, the, sea, uh, the sea lampreys are under control right now. Uh, Minnesota is, not, is no longer stocking lake trout in Lake Superior because the lake trout have been rehabilitated. Um, the fish that you catch now rarely have a fin clip indicating a stocked fish. So the, the lake trout have kind of rebounded. And uh, so the hearing, or the, I'm sorry, the smelt numbers are kind of, you know, a lot smaller than they were a few decades back. And uh, and so, yeah, now with this herring boom, you know, the, the lake trout, all, all the predator fish, the lake trout, the salmon, the, even the, um, the steelhead, as you mentioned, are, are feasting on these, uh, you know, five to six inch young uh, herring. You listen to WCCO Outdoors. I'm Rob Jerisan. We're chatting with Joe Shedd a little bit about some good news cooking on Lake Superior. A big hatch of lake herring up there, uh, which uh, bodes well. They're an important forage fish for a lot of sport fish species. So what does this mean for anglers, Joe? Uh, does this mean, you know, there's all this great forage out there, so maybe fish are less likely to bite? Or does it mean they're going to be putting on weight because they're going to be foraging, they're going to be eating this, this ample food source? And, and this, is, this is good news for anglers. Yeah, well, I've certainly seen uh, times over the years when uh, ample forage does kind of slow down the fishing, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Um, the fishing has been really good this year. Um, the king salmon in particular have been, and the cohos as well, have been a lot bigger than average. Mm. Um, they're catching some kings. Um, what's, what's interesting is uh, the DNR and some other agencies are doing a, a predator-prey survey where anglers can donate fish carcasses after they fillet it, and then the agencies will... Uh, a stomach content analysis of you know what these predators have been eating, and uh, the 2021 survey um, they found that the, the king salmon had um, like no fish in their bellies. They were subsisting on insects, and a, 
a king salmon is an eating machine, and it's not going to reach its full potential if it's living off of insects rather than fish. Mm. Well, with all these herring out there right now, they are just gorging themselves, and there's some really nice kings being caught this spring. So oh, they great. really responded quickly to the, the young herring in the population. And that should hold off, I would like to think, for years, right? I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, these herring will live to be 30, 40 years old in Lake Superior, so this, this is going to be around for a while, and, you know, I mean, who knows what, what the future is going to bring, but, you know, even slower-growing fish like lake trout are certainly devouring these herring, and, you know, we're, we may have a larger lake trout population. We may have bigger fish. I mean, wh- you know, who knows what's going to happen out there. Yeah, this is, this is great news. This is really cool. Last question for you, Joe. Now, I've eaten a few tula bean my day. I've had them smoked, and, and you know, they're not my first choice to eat fish. They're pretty oily. Uh, they're fairly bony. But my sense, at least from the Stanley article, is that this is a fairly good food source for people locally up there. Fish shops, do they sell a fair number of, of tulibies? I mean, is this good news for people uh, that want to eat lake herring, too? Yeah, absolutely it is. Um, as far as I'm concerned, tulibie fry every bit as good as a walleye. There's there's no wrong way to cook them. Smoked, pickled, fried, they're, they're fantastic any way you can get them. Well, good. All right. Well, <laughs> I'm glad. Uh, sounds like you're going to be enjoying a lot of uh, a lot of lake herring. I've eaten a lot of whitefish, which are very closely related to to tula bee. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know they get bigger, and they do have Y bones. You got to fly out. But and I'm I'm a huge fan of of whitefish. Uh, so uh, I'm I'm glad for the folks that are going to be enjoying this, and I'm glad for the the sport angle. I'm going to get up there and take advantage of those uh, these that that king bite you uh, you mentioned earlier. Joe, thanks a lot for calling in. Great. Great information. Looking forward to reading your uh, your more comprehensive story on this in Outdoor News. Okay. Thanks a lot, Rob. Thanks, Joe. Have a great week ahead. That was uh, that was Joe Shedd. He's up on Lake Superior sharing some details about uh, interesting story cooking up on the big lake. Uh, it's a, a big year class, a big hatch of tulabies slash Cisco slash Lake Herring on Lake Superior. I was just up there myself uh, touring UMD uh, with my son here this past week. So, anyway. Good news for the Lake Superior region. Let's break. We're going to talk about uh, this big buck taken in southern Minnesota, moved to a different part of the state. When we return, you're listening to WCCO Outdoors. Welcome back, everybody, to WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. I am Rob Dreesline. Thanks for joining us. We're here. We're halfway done. We're here till 6 o'clock, so please stick around. Lots more outdoor chatter on today's broadcast. I want to immediately jump in with uh, Scott Bestel. Uh, a gentleman I've known for many years. Scott, are you with me? I'm with you, sir. How are you this evening? You know, I was thinking as I was commuting down uh, to uh, conduct the broadcast, like, wow, uh, Scott's one of the guys I've known in the outdoor writing business longer than almost anyone. Uh, back in my Winona days, like 30 years ago, was probably, you know, I started there in 92, I left there in 94, so it was probably like 93 that I that I first met you, Scott. I remember ago. those days. Yeah, you were you were you wrote a great outdoor uh, outdoor page for the Winona Daily News. Yep. Yeah, those were the days back when every newspaper had a had a vibrant outdoor page, uh, or every community had a vibrant exactly. newspaper for that matter. But uh, exactly. Yeah. But we're you know we're lucky I, to live in the state we do. We still have a lot of great outdoors coverage between my gig at Outdoor yep. News. Yep. Uh, we've got you know the Star Tribune that's got you know what two and a half people devoted to the outdoors. A lot of outdoor freelance guys like you, so there's uh, there's some fine content. But uh, absolutely, yeah, Scott. I wanted to talk to you about a piece you wrote uh, for a couple of publications, including my own, uh, about uh, 
you know, arguably one of the biggest stories of the year, um, biggest story in quite a while. We've got ourselves, what, a new state record non-typical whitetail. I talked about it on a, a little bit on air last week, but you actually wrote a story about it and talked to the uh, the gentleman who found these antlers. Uh, give us some details. What's uh, What's the deal here? Yeah, it's a giant, giant deer found by a, a gentleman's name was Jesse Schroeder or Schrader. I uh, found the deer on his brother's 32-acre farm north of Lake City this spring. And, uh, yeah, the deer was well-known in the area, although Jesse had never seen deer. His, uh, a friend of his had had an encounter with it a couple years back. But, uh, yeah, he was out shed hunting and stumbled upon the, the rack of this uh, of this dead deer. And, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a monster, 277 inches and some change, and should the new Minnesota state record for non-typical. Yeah, tops the previous record by better than nine inches, or about nine inches, as my understanding. That was a 1974 buck taken by a guy named Mitch Volkic. Uh, so 49 years ago, this this record lasted almost 50 years. Now, an important point here. Boone and Crockett accepts deer that are racks, antlers that are found, uh, as well as hunted. So I've, you know, there's been a little feedback like, how can this be a record if it was found? That's that's just fine by B and C, right? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, the number one and number two non-typicals in the B and C book are both found deer. Yep. Is one of those the hole in the horn buck, the, uh, with the Missouri yeah, Monarch yeah, or whatever they call it? Yep, there's a Missouri Monarch and the hole in the horn buck. Those are number one and number two. And, uh, and then the number three buck was a hunter-killed deer, and that was shot in Illinois with a bow here, uh, 2018, I think it was. So, but yeah, this, but this Schrader, Schrader buck should be in the top 25 if the score holds up. So, I mean, we're talking a world-class deer. I mean, just when you think about all the the thousands and thousands of non-typical bucks that are shot over the last, well, Boone and Crockett has been keeping records since 1830. And when you place number twenty-five on you know on a list that that's is that long, it gives you some idea of how huge this buck is. When I saw pictures of this deer, and it's so incredibly huge, I still almost paused. It's like really, there's twenty-four bucks that are bigger <laughs> than than this one. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Well, and you're you're getting you know I mean when you get into the top twenty-five like that, I mean you know an inch or two can bump you down a place. I mean it just. But so yeah, we're talking about. I think the number one buck is three thirty something. So okay. you know he's only you know, forty five, fifty inches from that. Which you know when you're talking about, I mean you saw the crown antlers on that deer. I mean is there's just I think he's got four drop tines. His main frame as a ten pointer is one eighty two, which is easily makes the deer would have made Boone and Crockett as a typical without a hundred almost a hundred inches of non typical points. So yeah, it's just a. It's just a beast of a deer. Unbelievable. Yeah, You know, Scott, there might be people listening out there. You and I just assume everybody understands these terms. Can you quickly kind of define, explain the difference between typical and non-typical uh, and, and, you know, just what that means and why, why it's so substantial with this specific deer? Sure, I can do my best anyway. So, yeah, a typical frame on a whitetail is, um, you know, two main beams and the points grow basically, you know, uh, vertical off those in a, in a nice picket fence fashion that's mm-hmm. considered a, a typical uh frame of a of a of a white-tailed deer and then uh, when they start sprouting kickers and stickers and drop tines then they kind of fall into that non-typical category and and it's interesting you know as a deer 
the older a deer gets, the harder it is for it to maintain a typical frame because they tend to get kind of funky the older they get. The, you know, the older a deer gets, the more, you know, kicker points he'll throw off. And so when you get these truly world-class typical deer, they're super, super rare because they just want to get funky. But n not many of them get as funky as this deer. I mean, this deer had, you know, over – well, if you take a – you know, if you take a – the the Pope and Young minimum for a typical whitetail is 125 inches. This deer had almost had a uh, hundred inches of non-typical points, just extra junk, you know. So it's just uh, it's pretty amazing deer. And the world record typical is that still the the Milo Hansen buck out of Saskatchewan? Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, yeah and that's another deer that's held up forever. I mean, I, I think he shot that in the oh 90s. boy, I don't even want to guess. I, I believe yeah, it was the 1990s. 96? Yeah. So that's another one that's held up forever. And it's been threatened a couple times, but boy, it's, it's, it's gonna, I don't know. It's really hard. So yeah, some of these truly world-class deer, they just hold up forever. So this deer will get one more round of scoring, right? So what happened was uh, this Schroeder guy found the rack, I believe on, what you report, April 6th, April 7th, something like that. And then they still needed to have the 60-day the dry-down period. That's where you, you, you bring it yeah. inside and the moisture just dries out of it because that can, that can affect the scoring, that, that, that moisture inside the, the antlers. So that's standard operating procedure. That's one reason the Deer Classic is held in March every year after that 60-day dry-down period when all these deer have been accurately scored or can be accurately scored. So he found it in early April. It was scored, I think you reported, on June 10th. Uh, so and, and by, you know, measures who know what they're doing here, these Minnesota official measure guys, and they so their score is locked in. But it's my understanding, was there going to be one more round of scoring on it because of the size of the, and the, and the, uh, the fact that this rack is so significant? Yeah, when when Boone and Crockett gets a, a rack that's this big, then it'll be the the pan. So it was panel scored. So in other words, it wasn't just one guy with a tape measure. It was, it was the the panel was led by Dave Boland of Chatfield, who's a veteran Minnesota measure. He's literally, I think he's over a thousand heads he's entered in the book now. He's measured a ton for a long, long time. So Dave knows what he was doing. Had two backup scores with him, and so that's called a panel score um, when you get at least three measures that measure a rack. And then they'll submit they'll submit that paperwork to Boone and Crockett, and you're correct, Rob, that when they're when they get a score that big, then Boone and Crockett will just review. They'll probably ask Dave for a pile of pictures, and you know, just they'll be ma making sure they made right judgment calls because when you get a when you get a big non-typical rack like this, every once in a while a measure will have to go, oh boy, you know, how do we measure this point? Where do we start? And blah blah blah. So they'll just review it. But I, I'm I'm assuming that you know, B Dave being who he is, that. Boone and Crockett will, will will certify this thing as a state record. Sure, yeah. sure, yeah. I, Dave absolutely say it knows knows what he's doing. Uh, unclear how this deer died is my understanding, right? Be, because it was found. I mean, it's pretty rare that a buck this big that was being watched on, you know, had been seen on some trail cameras. Folks had seen it from the road, taking pictures from the road. Uh, yeah, I'm sure a lot of people were watching this, but I guess you know, a buck like this down in the in the uh, the the, the the bluff country the coulee region down there there's there's big wooded valleys where it can hide out smart buck avoided hunters and we're not clear if it got hit by a car or something else happened was it injured maybe by a bullet or by an arrow or just did it die of old age that's we're not clear right 
Right. Going to be kind of a mystery. And yeah, since he found it so late, you know, um, it's, it's, I'm sure it's hard to say. He, he did say he found the, the lower jaw and he, he felt like there might have been some infection in there, mm-hmm. but he wasn't positive. But, you know, these, these old bucks, they lead tough lives. I mean, they're, you know, they get in fights with other deer. Yeah. And, you know, he could have gotten bumped by a vehicle and lived for quite a while afterwards. And, uh, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to predict. So, yeah, there it's it's really amazing that he lasted as long as he did because Jesse estimates that the deer was at least seven and a half years old and could have been older. Yeah, and that's that's an old deer for folks who don't understand that the uh, that that's a good run, especially for a big buck. Uh, and the other thing yeah. that kind of amazed me, right? It was pretty much down to a skeleton, from what I understand. Uh, and I, I'm I, I'm surprised, you know, like rodents, mice will chew on antlers. Did Jesse mention anything to you about that? Were they had they been gnawed on a little bit, or were we just lucky he that was, uh, the rodents didn't didn't chew this baby down? He was absolutely shocked. That's a great point, Rob, too, because he he had found a shed um, right around that same time frame and in the same area, and the the squirrels had just gnawed that thing down to nothing. And yeah, squirrels and um, all kinds of critters love to chew on bone. It's uh, they get calcium from it. So yeah, it's not unusual to find a shed antler where the tines are almost about gone. You know, especially if you find it April, you know, late like he did. But yeah, miraculously, this deer escaped all those um, all those rodents and was a pretty much pretty much pristine rack, which is yeah, amazing. Yeah. Yeah, totally amazing. And uh, by the way, we should point out if if you find a set of antlers like that, right? You can go out and you can hunt sheds. You and I've talked. You had a great story, by the way, in outdoor news about shed hunting. I don't think people understand, especially out west. Uh, there's actually shed hunting seasons. Uh, it's it's much more restricted than maybe we understand here in the Midwest. But if you find shed antlers, right, you can just pick them up in Minnesota. Correct? That's yeah. that's pretty much that yeah. easy. But if you find a a, a whole head. Uh, with with that that uh, what would you call it the the skull plate attached, which is by the way very important. You got to have that skull plate for it to be officially scored, right? Correct. Yep. They got they got to be connected. You need to contact a local conservation officer, and that's what Jesse Schroeder did in this situation, right? He, did he get a permit, or did the yep. CO just kind of sign off on it? Yeah, kudos to him. That was an excellent mm-hmm. call. And yeah, I've I've found a couple deadheads, uh, you know, in my uh, in my years, and yeah, I, I've. Both my both the area wardens in my area are on my speed dial, and I just call them up and I'm like, "Hey, found a big deer, and you know he's laying right here, and you know I'll uh, if you want to come look at him." And and at one case they did uh, they did send uh, actually sent the sheriff's deputy out just to kind of verify, you know, because the season was open at that time. But most uh, most of the time, you know, when you find them off season, they'll just you know I know my wardens will just go, "I'll just mail you a possession permit." But it is important to get that. Before you even move the deer, right. um, you, you need to have you need to have permission from the CO. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's super easy to do, and you know just cover your bases and make sure you're legal. Yeah, and you, like we say, Jesse Schroeder did just that in in with this buck, correct? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So yep. Good. Yep. He was very smart. He knew. You know, bless his heart. He knew what he had. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't after seeing? I mean, this is a deer that you know most of us, you know, good gravy. I mean. You know, my biggest deer is in the 170s, and this is a hundred inches bigger than that. Wow. So it's almost like two racks. So yeah, it's he knew what he had immediately. So yeah, he did he did the smart thing and called uh, called the CO right away. Well, <clears throat> Scott, you've been an outdoors writer for a lot of years here in the Upper Midwest, and I got to think this is a, a bit of a, a a feather in your cap or a jewel in your crown too. It's got to be pretty proud that you were you were able to find and break this story. Congratulations to you. 
Well, I appreciate it. No, and Jesse was a great, you know, one, one of the perks of, of what I do is, you know, when you're able to interview a hunter and, you know, they're, they're appreciative and happy and, you know, just, uh, man, I mean, it's, you know, you, it's hard to get, hard to imagine you get paid to just, you know, write stories about stuff like that. So yeah, it was, a, it was a blessing for me too. So I appreciate Jesse and I appreciate you running the story as well. Yeah. Great story. Great, uh, great job running it down. Well, Scott, thanks for joining me for a few minutes to talk about this. I've been trying to get Jesse on, but I've had a hard time uh, kind of cornering him uh, and, and getting him on air, but uh, you, you definitely filled in all the blanks here today. So thank you and have uh, have a great week ahead, Scott. You as well, Rob. Thanks. Take care. All right, take care. That was Scott Bestall, outdoors writer extraordinaire here, based uh, down in southeastern Minnesota. A longtime friend of mine, longtime contributor to um, many different outdoor publications, not only in Minnesota but around the country. You can read Scott and Field and Stream, Outdoor Life, a lot of a uh, lot of similar titles. So appreciate him carving out a few minutes here on a Sunday evening to chat with us. Why don't we get in a break? I will uh, be happy to take a few calls, uh, 651-461-9226, if anybody's got a question about what we've talked about today or other outdoor topics. Otherwise, uh, I've got some other interesting news I can share and wrap up this week's broadcast of WCCO Outdoors. Welcome back, everybody. Final segment of this week's broadcast of WCCO Outdoors. I'm Rob Dreesline. Thanks for tuning in. Had a couple great guests there uh, with some fun topics. Uh, a couple news items I thought I would uh, discuss. I'd outline a little bit, share some thoughts before we uh, break for the evening. One, I understand there's a new mine proposal in Aitken County. Uh, and uh, that got a fair amount of social media chatter late this week. It involves something called Talon Metals the Tamarack Nickel Project, and uh, MinPost had a really good story. A guy named Walker Ornstein wrote about it. Uh, I've, uh, If you read me on social media, if you've read, read me in Outdoor News, you know I'm not a big fan of the Twin Metals proposal, which is a similar type of mining. It's non-ferrous uh, copper-nickel mining. Uh, that one bothers me because it's you know basically a long nine iron. I'm exaggerating a bit, but it's quite close. It's in the Rainy River watershed you know, near the Boundary Waters, and that's... That's a little disturbing to me, you know, the potential of that mine and, you know, could it contaminate, you know, some of the purest waters left in the lower 48. Uh, the Twin Metals folks say that, you know, they don't believe that's uh, going to happen. Uh, the other side saying you know, a lot of these sort of mines, we do see uh, some sort of contamination, and it's usually in a drier area, not in an area with, you know, such important pure waters. This one down in Aiken County is the Mississippi River drainage. Uh, and, you know, I'm obviously not in favor of, of polluting the Mississippi River, but, you know, the Mississippi is not, you know, even already, it's not as pure. Uh, it's, it's a different type of, you know, water than what you would have in the Rainy River watershed. Uh, and, you know, also it sounds like the actual processing of this ore wouldn't even occur in Minnesota. It would be shipped to North Dakota. Uh, there's a, a processing facility there, again, drier. Uh, so it, it strikes me as worth considering. We need these metals. We need these metals for our phones. We need these metals for our electric cars. I know there's some folks already you know, opposing it because they say uh, there's wild rice in the area, that sort of thing. But I, I'm not saying I'm all on board, but I, I do think you know, we as conservation-minded people can't automatically say no to everything, right? Uh, there's the, the beef with twin metals has been the wrong mine in the wrong place. Uh, there probably are the right place for this type of mine, and I'm not so sure what where they're proposing here in Aiken County isn't the right place. I think it at least needs to be considered. It, my understanding that this uh, operation's already got deals in place with Tesla, 
on electric cars. So I, I as I said on social media, I'd, I'd like to know more about it. I'd like to consider this because I, I don't think we can automatically just say we oppose all mining while we also run around with our cell phones and, and advocate for electric cars. Uh, another uh, quick story. I see old James Watt passed away at age 85. I think he it, uh, it was last month, but uh, it was we had a story about it this week. Those of us who were alive in the early 80s and interested in environmental and conservation issues back then, remember James Watt. He was Ronald Reagan's Secretary of the Interior. He was famous for other things. He kind of... Uh, got sideways with Nancy Reagan over the Beach Boys concert on the National Mall. And then he he, uh, he said something about the makeup of some committee. He commented on the racial and the gender demographics of that committee. And it was kind of a foot-and-mouth situation. And I, I believe he, he left shortly after that. But he came. He was not popular with environmental folks. Uh, and James Watt inspired a young Rob Jerusalem when I was, gosh, I was like 11 or 12 years old, to write his senator. To, I, I wrote a letter to Senator Dave Durenberger in the early '80s, uh, advocating that he he monitor you know what the Reagan administration was doing on conservation and environmental policy based on my concerns then as a geeky little eleven year old about James Watt, uh, and uh, probably inspired me to become an outdoors writer, outdoors communicator. So if you if you dislike this broadcast, if you dislike the things I write and talk about, well, I, I guess. Uh, James Watt inspired me to do it. I am out of time. I want to thank our guests. I want to thank all the listeners who joined us for the past one hour. I've had a lot of fun the past hour. Everybody have a great week ahead. Out of doors, Rob Jerislein signing off for WCCO Outdoors.